Um, I, I want to encourage you, I'm going to, uh, you know, kind of go pretty fast here just because we have so much to cover. There's a lot of information to cover, but um, it's really will be, I think, a better workshop and it'll be more, more helpful to you if you ask questions. So any question, just raise your hand and, and uh, we'll stop right, and, and I'm sure if you have the question, many other people do too. If there are some things that are maybe too, you know, maybe very specific to your situation, feel free to come up um, afterwards. We're going to be um, after the OPD presentation. Well, I'll be in at lunch with you, so you know, feel free to come up if you have uh, some special situation that you want to ask me about um, separately. So anyway, what we're going to talk about today is the NSF career proposal. But as Prem mentioned, um, you know, these career type proposals are grants from you know DARPA. Uh, DOD, um, NIH, USDA, a lot of them are very similar in that they're, um, they're, they want to invest in you, not just in your project. And so that's one thing that you want to keep in mind as you um, work on these. Um, so I think that, uh, uh, I think Prem already mentioned, I have a lot of experience writing proposals. And what um, I'm going to talk about today is my experience having worked on many, many career proposals and seeing what seemed to have worked, what didn't work, what the reviewer said, where, you know, the common mistakes that people tend to make, um, things that were especially successful. So that's really just sort of amalgam of many years working on this, this kind of grant and, um, you know, what my experience has been in watching these things come through and come back. Um, and so uh, what I, I what did work at Texas A&M for many years and now I'm a consultant and uh, my business is academic research funding strategies. So this is just one thing we do. We also help institutions with, uh, you know, in lots of ways to, to uh, be more successful in bringing in research funding. And um, I am going to refer to that website. That's, that's our website. You should have an electronic, do, do they have an electronic version of this PowerPoint? So there's going to be a lot of links here. So you'll just want to bring those up on your computer and then you can just click on them and, and uh, go to the various, URLs that are uh, referenced here. But anyway, I, there are quite a few resources on the website that you might want to look into. Okay, so what we're going to do is talk first about, um, you know, what is the NSF career program? Um, what you need to do before you start writing, like any, any kind of project, you need to do, go through a planning phase, and that's particularly too, true with NSF career. Uh, and then we're going to step through the proposal, each section, you know, what, what do you want to accomplish with each section of that proposal, and, you know, we'll highlight things that might be different for this and then things that are the same for as, as with other kinds of grants. Um, and we're going to talk, and I think you're probably going to be tired of me saying that this is not really a one proposal process for the career. You have three tries at it, and um, you need to plan on you probably taking those three tries. It may be that you win the lottery and you, you get funded the first time around, but um, plan on it being a three proposal process where you learn each time. And so we'll talk about um, what do you do when you get those reviews back? If you don't get funded, how do you take those reviews and then improve your, your next uh, submission? Um, first of all, I wanted to ask everybody, so has, how many of you have already submitted an NSF career? All right, okay. How many of you have already submitted an NSF grant of any kind? Okay. And are there, how many of you have never submitted a grant to NSF at all? Okay, so we have a good mix. So, and those of you who've already gone through this process and, and submitted a career, you know, if you have some things to contribute based on your experience, please let us know, because I think that a lot of times that's very helpful. Um, and sometimes it's institution specific, so you may be able to contribute some uh, pointers that I wouldn't know about because of um, your university. So anyway, the career. Um, to be eligible, you have to be untenured, 
uh, you need to be tenure track. Um, you have to have an assistant professor equivalent um, uh, title. You can't be an associate professor without tenure. You have to be an assistant professor. Um, you have to not have applied more than twice before. So you have three tries. Um, and of course, you need to be doing research that's of interest to NSF. So generally that means um, uh, things that are like clinical uh, work is not of NSF, you know, NSF doesn't fund that. Um, most humanities work they don't fund, but they do have, we'll talk about the wide range of things that they do fund. But you want to make sure that this is, what you're doing is of interest to NSF. If you win a career, you get five years of funding. Um, you get a minimum of $400,000, that includes indirect over the whole five years, unless you're in biology or polar programs in which you get a minimum of $500,000. Now that's unusual, isn't it, to see a minimum rather than a maximum. Usually you, you see that, you know, well, up to so much. And so the reason for that is that it's sort of internal politics at NSF because the career grant is supposed to be a significant grant. It's supposed to really help you along in your career. And, um, but that's sort of at the higher level of NSF. But now as you get down to the division and program level, those program officers, they want to fund as many people as they can. And so the natural um, inclination is to start whittling away at that budget so you can fund that one more person. So what's happening is there they, that the people on high at NSF made it a minimum amount so that the people in the trenches can't whittle down your, your award. And so that's why it's um, a minimum. But th that does have repercussions that I'll talk about in a minute as far as how the various programs see, or see the career, how they use it, and um, how much you can ask for depending on which program you're going to. You have to apply to a particular program within NSF, which is within a directorate, and we'll talk about that. For those of you who may not be familiar with NSF, exactly how it's organized, we'll talk about it in a minute. But that's really important. You have to know which program you're going to apply to, and, uh, and we'll talk about that in quite a bit of detail. Um, and then, as I said, the different divisions and, and directorates with NSF use the career program differently. From their point of view, they have a certain amount of money, they're going to invest in a lot of different programs and they can decide, well, I'm going to put you know, this amount into career versus I'm going to put it into regular core proposals or into other things. And what you'll see is that some divisions fund a whole lot of careers. They, they see that as their way to get um, the new, you know, the exciting new researchers started, whereas some of the other ones are much more hesitant to fund careers. And that has to do with the amount of budget they have. It has to do with the kinds of research they like to fund. So um, those are things that you need to know. You have to get to know your division, your program in order to figure out, well, should I even go in, go in for a career? Or if I'm going in for a career, what do I need to do with that proposal in order to be competitive? No, that, the overhead is all um, negotiated with NSF and with other federal agencies and that's all uh, set. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, but that does, that, that uh, award amount it does include indirect. Um, and then this is just a link to the NSF career page that you can follow later if you don't know where it is. Okay. All right, so I think with, with any grant program, you um, want to look at this from the point of view of the funder. When you're writing your proposal, you want to say, what is it that that funder is trying to accomplish by funding this grant? Because that will help you then to sell your project and, you know, and, and let them know how is it that they're going to accomplish what they want to accomplish by funding you. 
All right, so uh, I think some of this is kind of, I think, pretty obvious, okay? They want to nurture the next generation of researchers and educators. A lot of research is taking time away from students. NSF doesn't see that. They really see that research and education need to be integrated, that they actually each contribute to excellence in the other uh, field. And so what they're doing is they're, they're saying, telling you as the applicant that you have to integrate research and education. They're telling department head they want to see a letter showing how they're going to help you with that, support you. And this is a way to actually make sure that you are supported in you're in your additional activities that you're going to do. Uh, same thing with diversity, uh, with reaching out beyond the ivory tower, beyond the walls of your institution. All right, so NSF's organization. All right, NSF is divided into directorates. It's sort of analogous to what colleges would be at a university, um, you mainly by discipline. So they have bio, the biological sciences, computer information sciences, and so forth. Okay, and then each of those directors is divided into divisions and programs. Some of those programs are in clusters. Um, so it's really important for you to figure out where your research resides, where it best fits within this system. Um, and because if you apply the wrong place, then you're not going to be successful, even if you have a wonderful project. Um, there's a, this is a nice link, and um, I'm, let me see. I'm, I hesitate to go to the website to spend too much time, but let me just follow this really quickly to show you what is it. The thing about the NSF website is it's wonderful. It's a great resource, but it uh, can be overwhelming sometimes because it's just there's so much information you have to drill down. And sometimes you don't even figure out how you found something the next time you go to it. So this is, I think, a very helpful link, um, and this shows all the different directorates uh, divisions within the directorate, you can click on those and it's all in one place. And the, so, for example, if you are um, in geosciences, okay, you can look down, you can say, ah, oh, here's a division of atmospheric and geospace sciences, that's what I do. So you click on that, and then it takes you to that page, and then within that, it shows you the programs. And these are the, uh, and then you can click on that. Uh, let's see. For example, uh, this one, and then it gives you a program description, a synopsis here. It tells you what kinds of things they want to fund. And then if you go down to the bottom of this page, it tells you what has been funded recently. And that's, this is really key because sometimes these, these program descriptions, the synopsis, are outdated. In fact, I was just recently talking to a program officer who was frustrated because her program the, the synopsis is outdated. It doesn't really cover what they want to fund. So what you want to do is see where, you know, where do they actually put their money? And by looking at the, going to this, this is the, a really nice um, uh, database of all the awards. You can see all the awards out of Aeronomy. You can go up to the top and you can put in, type in career here and, and, under and then click title only, and then it'll tell you all the careers that came out of this program. And then you can click on those and find the, um, and then look at, if you click on each of those, you can find a summary, a project summary for each of those. So by doing this, this will help you figure out whether you're in the right place, and then we'll talk about what else you can do, but that's, I think, a, a really nice start to figuring out uh, uh, what, what program you might fit under. All right, so you can see that there is a lot of variety as far as the number of proposals. These are all just career, I should have put career proposals submitted to the different um, directorates. You can see engineering, 
it's a huge number in engineering, and that's because engineering funds a lot of careers, and that's sort of the, they, they use the careers a way to get their, their promising researchers started. Um, geosciences, much smaller. Uh, biology is less. EHR, they don't submit very many, but actually, and that's because they don't fund that many, but because of that, actually the success rate isn't as low as you might think. So EHR is, EHR is education and human resources, I should say. So you can see, you want to kind of a, ignore this. This is from the stimulus funding year, but all these other ones. You can see that the funding rates are typically below 20, except um, here computer information sciences has been pretty good. Uh, geosciences is pretty good. Biology, you know, down at uh, about 13%. And EHR is a little higher. The reason that you have such a difference in the number of careers that are, are given out is because the, fun, the uh, uh, budgets of these different directories vary a whole lot. So social and behavioral sciences, one, direct, uh, one program officer said pretty much their standard for giving careers is you need to walk on water. So that's important to know that, and it, may, and it varies by program. So if you're in social and behavioral, um, look at your particular program and see how many have been funded recently and see what kind of programs they were um, because it, it varies. And the reason for that is they just don't have that much money. Um, a lot of social and behavioral um, types of programs don't require $400,000, and so they would rather give out a core uh, grant than give out a uh, career. So anyway, the, the, the take home here is just to look at your particular program, your directorate, and see what, um, uh, what fits you. Okay, and as I said, you saw those odds. No, they were all under 50%, right? Quite a bit under 50%. So you know, odds are you're not going to get funded the first time around, but you have three tries. Each time you put in that proposal, you're going to get um, feedback. You're also going to have another year to keep working on your ideas. So each time you put in your, that career proposal, it's going to get stronger. And the big thing is not to give up. I think that the biggest mistake sometimes um, young faculty make is uh, they put you know, their heart and soul into their idea, into this proposal. They, you know, they really they put it in, and they wait six months waiting and waiting and waiting, and then they get back some reviews and the review, you know, like they sent their baby off and they sent back a little note saying your baby's ugly, right? And, they, and it just, it just kind of, sometimes it just, it really just kills their enthusiasm for going after Grant and they feel totally rejected, but you really shouldn't look at it that way. I mean, getting funded the first time around is difficult anyway. Um, they are trying to give you feedback to help you write a better proposal and you have to think of it just like sending out a paper, you're going to get back. Uh, you know, some notes for revision. So it's part, it's, that's the way you have to look at it for a career proposal. Okay, the big point here for a career is that it's not just a project. It's a, you have to have a career development plan. And this is just from the solicitation. They want you to talk about how you're going to build a firm foundation for a lifetime of integrated contributions to research and education. Okay, so that means you have, this is what's required. You have to have a research plan. You have to have an integrated education plan. And then you have to talk about how the research and education are integrated. Um, if you have had previous NSF support, you have to include a discussion of what the results of that were. And then you have to have a departmental head letter. And then there's a lot about you know, biosketches and so forth. But these are the key things that you have to have in a career proposal. All right, any questions so far? Yes? Is that all in the 15-page limit, except the department? Not the department letter, but yeah, everything else is in 15 pages. And we'll talk about, we'll, when we get to the section by section, we'll talk about kind of some tar page targets and, and how you try to do that. Yes? So, but 
the success rate slide, so those work, again, just for career. Just for career. Yeah, some, for some of them, it's, it's actually surprising. Because, you know, people tend, you know, everybody, I think there's a folklore that gets going, and people start feeling, oh, you know, only 6% or 7%. But, yeah, but actually, it is not as bad as you might think. And, of course, it will depend on what happens with the budget this next year, too. So there are no guarantees, but, uh, but it, it, it's uh, certainly not impossible to get a career. All right, so before you start writing, okay, you have to think about what your research idea is, right? You have to think about what you want to do, because remember, you could get this grant, and you're going to be spending five years on it. And if you just, you know, are, are going to say, well, you know, I really don't want, I've been doing this research, but I'm really not interested, I'm going to move something else, but I'm going to write my proposal on this stuff because I know I can win on this, then you're stuck five years doing this work. So, you know, sometimes the dog catches the car. So be sure it's a car you want to drive for five years. I yes. will say I've had some friends from other institutions get it their first try and their first year, and that's where they're at right now is they don't want to work on that anymore. So, oh, I mean, that's I feel, a maybe I'll feel glad I didn't get it on my first try. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 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 woo, you dodged that bullet. Yeah, I mean, that is a very good point. That is very, and it's our, certainly when we start talking about education, that's also a very good point there. Um, all right, then, you know, does it address questions that are important in your field? You know, this needs to be something that really is going to help you become a leader in your field eventually, and it needs to excite the reviewers. So you want to make sure that it's something that's really significant. I mean, I think the thing that can happen is that, you know, maybe you uh, were working in, when you got your doctorate, you were working with um, a professor who was extremely well known in his field. He had been working in this for maybe the last 10 or 15 years. You came in, you worked with him. And uh, it's sort of kind of, this, this line of inquiry sort of kind of completing itself. And what's left is dotting the I's, crossing the T's, but you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of petering out. And it may be tempting to write your career on that because that's where you have your publications and everything, but just remember, you need to make an argument, this is real, you are still addressing really important questions. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, so it needs to be novel, cutting edge, um, but you have to have the background and resources to accomplish your goals. So if you're in that sort of situation where maybe you're moving into a, a new field or at least a new kind of part of, of in, within your field, um, you, need, you need to be able to make the argument that the publications that you have uh, relate, you know, how the skills from your, your prior research relate to what you're doing, or you may want to take a year and start generating preliminary data, generating uh, publications in this new field before you actually write your proposal, because they will be looking for that. Um, and of course, it needs to contribute to your career goals. Where do you want to go? Because that's the point of this whole grant, is that it needs to help you get to where you want to be on there. And the big thing too is, and I think sometimes people forget this, it has to contribute to your departments and your institution's goals. So um, there, in that department head letter, you, they're going to have to explain how what you're doing contributes to your goals. Usually that's not a problem for research because they hired you, right? So unless you're really changing what you're doing and it's not of interest to your department, that's usually not a problem. All right. So then too, you have to be strategic because you have three tries. And so you want to make sure those tries count. So you have to think, okay, how am I going to use my three tries? Um, you know, are you ready? Do you have publications in the area? Um, how many years do you have left of tenure? If you only have three years left of tenure, you know, maybe you just want to go ahead and go for it. Um, if you're just starting out 
and you maybe in a lab related science um, do you have your lab set up do you have your graduate students are you ready if you got this grant um, would you be ready to hit the ground running because they're going to be looking for that if you're just this is just and sometimes I've known people that they've written their career the summer before they start in the fall their new um, position and that's usually not a good idea because the reviewers can tell you're not you know you don't know your institution yet you um, you don't have your lab set up you're not really ready to go you know there are obviously special situations where you did a postdoc and you're doing this wonderful stuff but usually it's you want to make sure that you're really ready um, and you you got everything lined up before you do that and if you need preliminary data for your proposal do you have it yet okay so that begs the question do I need preliminary data? Okay, so um, if this really varies by discipline. You know, if you're in uh, mathematics, they don't usually want a lot. If you're in biology, they usually want a ton. Engineering is sort of in the middle. And you need to talk, this is why you want to talk to your mentors, talk to people in your department, and uh, get the feedback from them about what do, you know, what, what amount of preliminary data is usually expected. Also, you have to think about your particular research idea. You know, is this really cutting edge? Is this risky? Okay, is this something where you need preliminary data to convince your reviewers that what you're going to do is really feasible, that it's likely to succeed? Because, you know, reviewers, they've got this money that they, they're going to, they don't really have the money, but they have to, you know, give some input to the program officer how, the, how to give out this money. And they feel a big responsibility because they have to turn down a lot of projects, a lot of excellent projects. So they, of course, want to invest in something that's going to be very exciting, cutting edge, significant, but they also want to invest in something that's likely to succeed. And so sometimes that likely, to, when you're talking about something that's really cutting edge and risky, uh, you have to help that, those reviewers feel comfortable that they're take, you know, turning someone else down to give you $450,000 um, that you are likely to succeed. That it's not likely that in the first year you're going to get bad results and you're going to be blown out of the water because they will feel that they didn't help the pro program officer invest wisely. Okay. Then they're also going to look at your track record. You know, if you have a really strong track record, if you, you know, did a lot in this area, even though maybe this is a risky new idea, then that's going to be more helpful uh, to, and the reviewer is going to feel more comfortable. If though um, you are doing a new methodology, say you're going into a new field, you haven't done this, you know, you haven't done this kind of testing before, then you're going to really need to show that you can do what you said you're going to do. You're going to have having that preliminary day saying, look, I've done this, you know, uh, atomic force microscope work, or I've done whatever it is. Um, showing them that you you know how to do it is important, and that's something that you can use preliminary data for also. And then another big thing is, are there any potential showstoppers that could totally stop your, your research early on in the project, if you got a negative answer, that maybe you can explore with preliminary calculations or experiments? Again, this, that goes to the idea of, you know, are you likely to be successful? So reviewers are looking for that, well, and I'll talk about that more later, but they're really looking for any little holes, anything where they say, ooh, you know, if she gets bad results in the middle of year two on this test, where's she going to go? And uh, so they, that, then they, if they, they, they can't answer that question, they're going to throw your proposal to the side. And then, whew, they have one less to worry about. So you want to make sure that you think about that. And if there are, are showstoppers that you do the testing you need, the calculations you need to show that this is not likely to be a problem. OK, yes? So sometimes you hear, like, oh, you, when you write your proposal, 50% of it is already done. So to what, like, how much? 
Yeah, that's always, and that really goes to how you write the proposal. Because you have this project that you're going to do, and what that, that, was, that preliminary data should not be part of that project. The preliminary data is showing you the way to where the project is going to go. And so um, you, you cannot, you, one thing you have to worry about with, uh, if you have a lot of preliminary data, is not overwhelming the reviewers with the preliminary data. So what you want to do, and we'll talk about this more when we get into the section by section part, is you want to summarize, you know, what is it about this preliminary data that it's telling the, you and the reviewers? That you, in the very beginning, you're going to say, okay, you know, this preliminary work shows that, you know, this, this approach is feasible, that I have the, you know, t expertise, and so forth and so on, and you summarize it. But then when you go to your project plan, it should go from there. It shouldn't include what you've already done. Okay, so that helps because I think what happens is it can be very confusing, particularly if you do have a lot of preliminary data, it can confuse the reviewers. And a lot of times what people tend to do is they fold in their preliminary data when they're talking about their project plan. So then it really makes it look like they've already done half of what they said they're going to do. So we'll talk about that. And give you, I'll give you some examples a little bit later, and that might help a little. Um, so okay, so you're a hot new faculty member. You're a researcher. You're coming in. The reason they, they hired you is because you have great new ideas, these high-risk, high-payoff ideas. And now you say, and I'm saying, oh, you know, you better be careful about putting those in a career <coughs> proposal. Um, so what do you do if you have this great high-risk, high-payoff idea, um, and you don't have money to generate all this preliminary data? Um, one thing you might consider is going for an NSF eager first, and what that that is specifically for high risk, high payoff ideas, and it's the idea is it'll give you money to generate that preliminary data. Now, if you want to do that, there's that link will take you to the requirements in the grant proposal guide. Um, you need to talk to the program officer first and get their go-ahead before you write an eager proposal. And the whole idea behind eager, it does not have to go to reviewers. It's actually reviewed internally. So the idea behind it is to help um, people with these high payoff, high risk ideas because there's this concern that reviewers are tend to be too conservative and that great new ideas are not getting funded because of that process and where reviewers just don't want to commit money when they're not sure you're going to be successful. So the idea behind the eager is it's not to go around the review process, but to get you to the point where you can write a competitive proposal and you have that preliminary data. So that's something to keep in mind. Another thing to think about, if maybe you don't think it quite rises to the level of an eager, which does require really high payoff, is to go for a standard grant to, to NSF. So if you have something that's pretty high risk and you're asking for five years of funding, that's a real big um, commitment. And it also means that you, you know, you, if you do have that problem at the end of year two, then you're not, you know, you, then you're not going to be able to finish the project. You could go for a two-year or a one-year standard NSF grant. And then it's not as much of a risk on the part of the reviewers to give you that money to explore this idea. And then, you know, if, if it's successful, you could still go for a career if you're still eligible. So that's something else to think about if you have an idea that you really love and maybe it's just a little too high risk for a career is to go one of these other two ways. Okay. And another thing to do before you start writing is to talk to your department head or chair. Do they have heads or chairs here? Both. Both. Okay. So head slash chair. Um, because you want to let make sure that she knows that you're working on a career. You want to clear your ideas with her because um, you don't want to come you know, have written your proposal, show up and say, hey, I need a letter, um, and it's June, and 
she has a problem with it. And usually, again, this is not a, usually a problem with the research part. It might be more with the education part. If you, for example, you want to develop a new course and um, they say, well, no, we need you to teach these other courses or whatever. So just be sure and, and, and talk to the department head or chair and let them know um, that you're working on a career. Okay. Now the big thing, I think as I've already said, is understanding where to, to apply. Okay. Um, you, again, I'm saying if you apply to the wrong program within NSF, you can doom your proposal, even if it's a wonderful idea. If it doesn't fit the program, doesn't fit the priorities of that program officer and that program, they're not going to want to spend their money. See, they're investing in certain things, and they're not going to invest in something they're not interested in. Okay. Um, so go to the website. I already showed you that. There's also, the, um, if you go to that second link, that's a video on my website just basically showing what I showed you here on how to navigate the website to get the pro to figure out which ones are the program disciplinary programs versus um, solicitations and, and looking at the um, award database. Um, then after that, be sure and talk to your program director. So you can, I think the best way to do that is to email them first with a little short description of your your idea you know what your the objectives are um, not long because you know they've got hundreds and hundreds of emails every day so they're not going to want to read three pages but just just an idea so that they can look at it and ask when there's a good time that you could talk to them on the phone um, and I think that that talking to them on the phone is really helpful because uh, they're I think tend to be a little bit more open you know, than if you're going emails back and forth. And um, it's really a good idea to get to know your program director. This is not schmoozing, this is not trying to be their buddy and get around the system, but they see themselves as mentoring you. They're, going, they're looking for people to invest in, and um, they also want a good, good proposals coming in. So they really do want to help you. And of course, things vary, you know, different program directors, they're, a lot of the times they're rotators with their faculty, and you know, faculty are all different, right? And some are more outgoing and some are more supportive than others, but generally, they really like to get to know you and they like to give you feedback and they want to encourage you and so it's very helpful to talk to them and particularly talking to them about whether your research idea fits in their program. Also talk to senior researchers in your area, particularly if you have some who have been funded well by NSF in your particular area. Um, a lot of times they've been reviewers for NSF and they'll have a good idea of what the, the, the particular program is interested in funding and where it's going in the future also a lot of times. All right, so a lot of you probably are doing interdisciplinary work now. That's kind of where things are going. That's where a lot of the exciting new uh, developments are happening is at interdisciplinary, you know, the cusp of disciplines. And the problem is, you know, and NSF loves that. They love interdisciplinary research. The only problem is they're organized around disciplines. So this is a, you know, it's, it's really a, a, pro a conundrum because um, when you apply to a particular discipline, the reviewers are from that discipline. And so if you're kind of on the edge of two disciplines, then you have to learn how to deal with that. Talk to the program officer, and if they really agree that it's um, interdisciplinary, they, they will tell you whether you might want to apply to more than one program and be co-reviewed by more than one program. Um, there are some advantages to doing that. One is that neither of them has to to fund the full amount of, you know, they share the funding of your project, so that's nice for them. Um, the problem is that you have to get good reviews from both programs. So, but I did, and I, and I cannot vouch for the accuracy of this, but I did hear one program officer say, he's, a, he's an academic and clearly, I guess, into statistics, he went through and did an analysis, and, and this was not just for careers, but for all NSF proposals, he said the funding rate was higher for co-reviewed proposals than for proposals, uh, you know, reviewed just by one program. The big thing, the key though, is to make sure, talk to the program officer. So if you have like, you know, look at it and say, well, which one's the main discipline? So 
So contact that program officer, tell them you know, what you're doing, um, you know, say, oh, you know, I'm doing engineering, but it's also biology, you know, should I you know, be co-reviewed? And they, they'll tell you, and sometimes it's almost, it's interesting, there seems to be some, some program officers say, well, I, we don't co-review with that other program. I don't know why. I don't know if that's a, a personal problem or, or why, why that is. And, but a lot of times they do. So they, they seems like sometimes these programs develop relationships with other programs, particularly if there are a lot of proposals that might come in that are at the cusp of disciplines. One thing you want to be careful about, though, is if you are, for example, mainly engineering, and you have a little biological flavor to your proposal, maybe some of the applications might be biological. Be careful because if you send that to a bunch of biologists. They're not gonna, they probably won't understand it and they probably won't be impressed because it's not biology. So you wanna make sure it truly is interdisciplinary if you go that way. Yes? I just wanna add something with respect to that because you know, I thought it could only be good that it get looked at by multiple panels, but I didn't, and maybe this isn't always the case, but I didn't realize that they share the reviews and so if one panel likes it and the other one doesn't, they might think this is really great and say, oh, but you know what, it got reviewed by the other panel, they hated it. So it can actually hurt you if it's not a good fit for the other one then you're stuck with those bad reviews for the one that the other panel actually really liked. Yep, I'm, yeah, that's, I learned my lesson on that. Yeah, it really, it is, yeah, it has really been, I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sticky question. And, and, you know, in each review panel at NSF, we'll talk about review, you know, how the reviews happen, but um, they're all different. Yeah, so one year, you know, it'll be some people, and it'll be, it might be different, totally different people. So it's, it's hard to predict. Yes? So these are reviewed as part of a regular it depends on the program. Sometimes, some, a lot of engineering programs have separate career panels, but some of the other programs don't. They, they review the careers with, along with the other core proposals. So it really varies. Okay. All right, and I think I already talked about this. When you talk to a program officer, uh, really listen to what they say. You know, I, sometimes there's a tendency to want to hear, you know, listen to what you want to hear, but if they're saying, mm, you know, this is not really what we fund, or you know, I, you might consider going to so-and-so, you know, take that to heart because, um, you know, there's no point in putting a lot of work into a proposal that you're sending to a program where it just doesn't fit. All right, so then too, think, you know, we talked about NSF career versus the NSF core proposals. Um, the five-year project versus the two or three-year project, so, you know, careers five, the cores are usually two or three. Um, the success rate, though, for core proposals is typically higher. So that's just something, again, to keep in mind. If what you're doing is just doesn't fit a career, either um, because it's too high risk or because you really just don't want to do a five-year program. Maybe you're not comfortable proposing for this particular topic, a five-year program, but you're excited about it. Or, and I've talked to some people, and then we'll talk you know, in a little bit about all this education work that you have to do. Um, you know, some people are just like, I'm just not into that. I just really, you know, if you really don't want to do a big education component, don't make yourself do it because you're going to be doing, and it's going to be a lot of work. So if that's the case, you can do something much less involved and put in a core proposal. Um, now the advantage of the career, though, is uh, that it's very prestigious. And, you know, there's nobody's going to sneeze at a regular NSF grant if you win one, but certainly having a career is prestigious. It also can make you eligible for the P case, which is ultra prestigious, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, oh, and then one thing, a big thing between the career, difference between the career and the core, is that, you know, for the career you can't have co-PIs. 
And so if you're doing a project, sometimes I talk to people, particularly with this interdisciplinary kind of research, where they say, boy, I really need a KOKI, um, don't try to force fit it into a career. Just put in a regular court proposal in that case. And then you know, think about, well, maybe, maybe you can do something else for your career. Um, because you know, if you're trying to write around something, you know, reviewers, they're all in your discipline too. You know, they're going to catch that, and they're going to ask, why, why, is, why is he doing that? All right, so now for the education plan. I've alluded to this, but I haven't really attacked it head on yet. Um, so this is, I'm going to talk about writing the career plan when we go through the sections of the proposal, but this is developing your education plan. So this requires, just like with your research, this is going to require some planning. You really have to think, what are you interested in doing? What fits your institution, your department, your students, your disciplines? You know, look for a need, look for an opportunity, something that, you know, maybe you're seeing students come in and they really don't have a background in a certain area you feel like they need to. Or maybe you're teaching a class and they're just not getting something. Or maybe you're teaching a class and or you're seeing in, the, in second year you're getting a lot of attrition in your field. All those kinds of things are needs that you might want to address. Look for things that fit what your, your experience is and what you're interested in. Okay, and then also look for the infrastructure that's already at your institution. And I've been talking to your proposal development group, and they, there's a lot of great stuff, and they know what that, that is, and they'll talk a little bit more about this later. Um, but, you know, what is already going on in your institution? You don't have to go out to second graders and talk about quantum physics. You know, you don't have to, you, there's a lot of things already going on here. You don't have to go out and, and do all that legwork because a lot of times the infrastructure is already here. You, they, they're already bringing in high school students. Um, you may already have pre-service teachers here. Um, there may be undergraduate research programs that you can connect to. So keep that in mind because um, you know the reviewers are going to look for that too. Are you taking advantage of what's in your institution, and are you um, going likely not to have to spend all your time on this? So you can have an impact, but not have to develop all the infrastructure and go talk to the teacher and the principal and all that kind of thing. Okay. Typically for education plans, um, usually they're multi-pronged, so they usually target several different populations. You may, you know, they definitely expect you to mentor graduate students. Um, hopefully do something kind of additional with your grad students, maybe develop a new graduate course, maybe do some interesting mentoring work with them, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you should be probably targeting undergrad students in some way. You know, like I said, there may be things, special needs that you're seeing in your undergrads that, where you, that you're going to address, or new technologies you want to try, new teaching methods you want to try. Maybe you really feel that they need more hands-on work, or maybe you feel that their critical thinking is just not great, or maybe you're seeing, oh my gosh, they don't have, they can't write at all, and they really need help with their writing. All those things are things you might address, and then usually there there has to be some sort of um, diversity component. And, that, and this is particularly if you're interested in PKs. Someone was just recently telling me, somebody at NSF was saying, that um, people who win PKs always have a very, very strong diversity component. So it's something to keep in mind. But you have to address diversity in some way. And that could be reaching out to, um, you know, to K-12 students. It could be um, helping your, um, uh, your freshman students be more successful than minority students. Um, it could be uh, targeting students, minority students, to encourage them to go into grad school. Whatever you feel is really appropriate for your discipline and where you feel the need is, uh, but you want to do those things. So usually what happens in a lot of the, pro you know, and of course this varies just like I can't tell you how to do your research plan. I can't tell you how you do your education plan, but I can tell you the sort of things I've seen that have been successful, have been, you know, have been winning uh, uh, projects. And um, uh, usually there's like one really cool idea 
that they, you know, that maybe takes most of the time, and it might be, you know, generating this whole new way of teaching, you know, freshman physics, or it might be working with um, girls in middle school, or it might be uh, doing something really neat with their grad students, and that's going to take most of their work. But then they also have some smaller things that they're going to do with these other populations. So usually, usually it's not just one thing, but it's several things. Okay, a big thing for the education plan is don't reinvent the wheel. And I think that you all may have um, already read, there was an article and a handout on, uh, it was an interview with Jeff Freud on education components, sort of, there's a lot going on in education, and particularly at the undergraduate level, a lot of really interesting things. So, you know, look at those, and look what might apply to you. And sometimes, you know, you f I find that, um, People who won careers get very excited about that education component. They, you know, they start to, to see the possibilities. They're talking to people who do education research. They're looking at what's been done. And this can be a whole new part of their, I mean, this is what NSF really wants, is a whole new part of their career is, is doing some of that education work, too. They find it very invigorating. So find out what's out there. You don't have to make it all up by yourself. Um, this uh, website, the eric.ed, is a really nice database of education uh, uh, research articles. And I find it is not, I'm not an education person, so um, I find this one really easy to find things. You can do a nice little search on, you know, math, you know, math teaching and, or physics or whatever, and you can find interesting articles on diversity. But, you know, do a little research just like you would with your regular research, you need to understand what the state of the art is, what the state of knowledge is, and then how you're going to contribute to it with your education plan. Okay, and I said, you know, before, identify what the need is you're addressing or the, or the opportunity, if there's some new opportunity. Um, have clear goals and objectives, just like with your research. What are you trying to accomplish? How are you going to accomplish it? Um, be sure and address diversity. You need to assess, have an assessment plan for your education component. So figure out, okay, you have these goals, how are you going to determine if you were successful with the goals? You know, usually with research that's pretty obvious, but for your education component. So for example, uh, maybe you're saying, you know, I don't see uh, any minorities going into, or I, I don't see an, you know, very many minorities going into um, physics. And I really want to encourage them to do that, and so I'm going to do this, that, and the other. What is your goal? Um, your goal might be to, uh, it might be to say, well, I want more minorities to become physicists. Now, how are you going to assess that? Are you going to take these, you know, go work with eighth graders and follow them all the way through and see who, who became physicists? That's probably not very uh, uh, practical. So what you want to do is set your goal to, uh, I want to increase the interest of, of kids in physics and maybe, uh, you know, make sure that they ha understand what careers are available in physics. That's much easier to assess, right, because you can give them a, uh, a questionnaire, you can talk to them, you can interview them, kind of stuff, and see if you had an impact. So that's something to keep in mind is when you're setting your goals and your objectives, make sure there's something that you can assess, particularly those objectives. And then think about how you're going to disseminate your results. So just as with your research, you need to have an impact beyond just what your little project was. It needs to, to be incorporated into the community. It needs to, if you're generating new materials, so you're generating a new uh, lab, a new hands-on activities, um, uh, some new computer visualization, or any of those, can you make those available to others who might want to use them? You know, maybe you're developing a whole new way of teaching freshman physics. Maybe you can put that up somewhere where other people can use that information. And there are open education websites, which are in that article. There's some links to those um, where you can actually, you know, look at what other people have done. You can also do the same thing. You can say, oh, look, somebody at 
Um, University of Nevada did a really neat thing with you know teaching the same thing I do. I want to try that here and see how well it works. You could do that. So particularly if that was funded by NSF, NSF loves to see things that they fund get used elsewhere. So you know particularly you're going you're to want to do something that actually adds to knowledge. You're going to want to assess it, but that's another way to go. All right. Okay. Yes. Can I just add back on the other slide? One of the things being in the College of Education and Human Sciences and Science Ed, I'd encourage people also to talk to the education experts if you need them early in the process. I know I've had situations where people have called me kind of at the last minute. It's very hard to help develop a concept or provide information or research. And so if we can be, you know, if you need folks like myself, just come to us early, talk to us. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm John Peterson. I'm the uh, Associate Dean for Research in College of Education and Human Science. Wonderful. And in fact, that is, I think, a wonderful point. I'm going to talk about this a little more when we get to collaborations. But I think that this, you know, NSF and I think reviewers really are impressed by people who can reach out. If you don't have, if a PI doesn't have the expertise, which most, you know, if you're in physics or math or engineering, you may not have the expertise in education. If you have the ability to reach out and find those people and bring them in, that is a that shows, I think, a certain um, uh, ability on your part that's going to make you successful and make them want to fund you. Um, and I think that definitely reaching out to those education people who are experts in education is can make a huge difference. And not only in the way the reviewers see you, but what I've seen is people who work with people in education, their education components are just much more sophisticated, much better written. They you know, know the research because they were told what the research was. They know how to assess because they you know, working with their education collaborators to do a, probably a, a much more sophisticated assessment. And so what happens is they get lots of great ideas from these folks. So it's not like they're just saying, oh, I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to bring an education component person to, to advise me. They're actually going to them at this planning stage and finding out, you know, getting ideas. And so I think it's a wonderful idea to do that if you have people who are willing to work with you. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about how you do that because you, don't ha you can't have co-PIs on the career, but there are other ways you can do that. All right. Okay, be sure when you're, you're thinking about your education component, how much money is it going to take? The worst thing you can do is plan to do something and not put any money in there, in the budget for it, particularly if it's something like you know, working with uh, grade school kids and bringing busing them in to for a Saturday program or something like that where it takes money. Um, and in fact, you know, the one one thing that can happen if you forget to put those people in the the budget is that um, the reviewers will notice it and go, "Ah, oh, this person isn't serious." The worst thing that can happen is you might actually get funded, and then you said you're going to do this and you don't have the money to do it. So be sure that you fund whatever it is you say you're going to be doing on the on education. Uh, you can also look for other activities, things that are already going on, so you can leverage things that maybe are already funded. Um, remember that you can also apply for research experiences for undergraduate supplement if you win a career. So say you're going to have, you know, they expect you to have undergrads in your lab or working, helping you with your research. Uh, but maybe you want to have several and you don't have enough money for, to support several undergrads. You can say, well, I'm going to, if I get this money, um, I will apply for an REU supplement and, you know, maybe you're going to bring some students in for the summer from a predominantly undergraduate institution or something like that or from a minority serving institution that will work with you. So you can always add that into your proposal. All right, and then also just think about any, 
you know, so you, I said you're going to have like this one probably golly gee great interesting uh, education activity, but you're also going to have all these things you're going to you have to do anyway. You're going to mentor grad students, and you can do little things to kind of kick that up a, a notch. So um, don't just say, well, I'm going to mentor my grad students like everybody does, right? You know, you can you can say, well, I'm going to do these. I, I see that my my grad students end up working in public policy, so I'm going to arrange for them to go to Washington D.C. or I'm going to arrange for an internship or I'm going to have speakers come in, or you could say, um, I see that my grad students really don't really have an idea of all the different career paths they have, so I'm going to have a special luncheon so, to help uh, you know, these grad students understand what their options are as far as their career path. Those things are not a huge amount of work, but they're just adding, it's just kind of kicking it up a notch as far as mentoring, and it kind of makes, gives your education plan a little more pizzazz. And as I said, you know, be sure you include undergrads in your research. That is really expected now. It used to be a few years ago, that was a great new idea. And that's the problem with, you know, the problem with um, people who apply for careers is they're very smart. And so what happens is they learn. They learn what's been successful in the past, and then everybody does it the next year. And so the bar just keeps getting higher and higher. So it used to be people didn't really think about having undergrads in their lab very much. You know, they might you know, have one or two. But, you know, then they started doing that, and NSF really likes that, and so now everybody does it, and if you don't do it, they're gonna say, hmm, why doesn't this person have undergrads doing research with them? So, all right, collaborators, okay? You can't have co-PI or senior personnel on your, uh, on your grant, so that's something they just keep in mind, because it's about you, and they wanna make sure that that money goes to you and that it, it helps your career. Okay, but you ha can have collaborators, okay? And so the difference is a collaborator is somebody who might uh, contribute one, something that's you know, a specific thing that you, they are not on the budget. So, but you can pay for some, some expense. So for example, if you have uh, a colleague who has equipment that you need in their lab, you can pay for equipment access. If you're gonna work with, say, somebody in the education department, you can pay, and they're, they're gonna help you with assessment, and they're gonna have a grad student come and give various testing for, to your students. You can pay for that grad student's time. So there are things you can do that are not funding that particular faculty member, but still, you know, so it's not, they don't have a lot of expense out of their pocket, um, and they can help you with something in particular that you need help with. Okay, and you want to use these collaborators to fill in gaps in your expertise. So we already talked about education, that's usually a big gap for a lot of people. Um, but also other things, you know, like if you're, uh, you know, need to do some particular methodology, or if you, you know, you're not a statistician, but you're going to need some more statistics, those kind of things, that's where you can uh, recruit people to be collaborators. All right, so now this one I said contact your office of sponsored projects before you get started writing. Now here, you guys have the proposal <laughs> development group, and they are, you know, you have, I have to say, you have a great situation here because most universities I go to do not have this kind of office that's willing to help you through the whole process of writing your career. And so I would say, you know, you really want to take advantage of that, and they can also help you kind of interface with the office of sponsored projects as far as your budget and so forth. So get to them early because early you get to them, the more you're going to get out of them, right? You can give them, you know, multiple drafts. They can help you with your planning. They can help you figure out, um, you know, your education component, your outreach, all those kinds of things because they, you know, just like I have, you know, they've worked on lots of careers and they also, like I don't, they know what's going on here at your university, where the connections are, what the infrastructure is. So take advantage of that. 
Um, so I think you know they have all those things, and then of course they'll work with help with uh, the Office of Sponsored Projects as far as fast lane and all that kind of stuff. So the big point of this slide is just start early, get to them early, and so there's not any last minute hiccups as far as you know being registered on fast lane or getting your budget done, and that kind of stuff. All right, and then you know um, before you start writing, make sure you understand what the review criteria are. Okay, and that's intellectual merit, broader impacts, equally weighted. That's the, the mantra at NSF for all NSF grants, okay? The other things I'm gonna look for, is your research significant and innovative, okay? The reason I'm going through all these is these, this is what you're gonna have to have in your proposal text. You're gonna have to explain each of these things to your reviewers. Why is it your research is significant and innovative? Why you have the skills and resources to accomplish the project. Um, that you have support of your department. That's gonna be that department head letter and maybe throughout your project description. Um, how your research and edu education is integrated. And does your education plan go beyond what is expected for all assistant professors? So what sometimes people do is say, I'm gonna do research, I'm gonna teach a class, maybe I'm gonna develop one new class and I'm going to um, mentor grad students. Well, that's what everybody does. The whole point of career is you have to go above and beyond. So that's what you want to explain is what you're doing and particularly with education is going, going above and beyond. And then, of course, this whole thing about is your project li likely to be successful? That is something reviewers are really gonna be looking at. And do you address diversity and benefits to society? Okay, so common reason, this is from an NSF uh, slide, an NSF program officer, common reasons for careers not to be awarded, okay? It, one of them is scope. This is really tough, is, is you know, getting the scope right for a five-year project. You don't want it to be so ambitious that there's you know, no, way, no way you can be successful or, and you don't want it to be so narrow that you're really not gonna make a big impact or you might be done in two or three years. So that's, that's something a lot of times you have to work at and a lot of times having a schedule, milestones, that kind of thing will help you. And we'll talk about that a little more later, but um, to make it clear to yourself as you're planning, you know, is this a five-year project? Is this realistic? Um, make sh okay, another reason that people might not get funded is the proposed methods do not address the stated research goals. You would think this would be obvious, but it's amazing how often this happens. That people write that they're gonna accomplish X, Y, Z, and then you go through the whole thing and it doesn't, if they do this, they're not necessarily gonna accomplish X, Y, Z. So make sure that everything hangs, hangs together logically, that if you, your goals actually match what you're going to do. Um, your education component is either limited to routine courses or is unrealistically overambitious. Be careful about that. I see that more often, is that people uh, you know, say they're gonna write a new textbook, they're gonna teach quantum mechanics to second graders, gonna do it. And so what reviewers say is, well, my gosh, if, if she does all that, she'll never get tenure. So you wanna make sure that it's something that's cool, that, it's, um, uh, that it you know, has an impact, but you, it, can't be, it can't take up all your time. And that integration of research and education is weaker and uninspired. Basically, a lot of times they took, they took kind of a, something they had from another proposal, stuck it in as their education component. It doesn't really collect, connect to their research. Okay, any questions before we start stepping through? I know I'm kind of going fast, but I want to have time to, to uh, show you some examples. So any questions before we go into actual writing? Okay, all right. So now we're going to talk about actually writing your career proposal. Okay, these are the sections. Um, the things that are required, um, you have a one-page project summary, you have a project description. So those two together are, that's you know, really the meat of your proposal. 
that 16 pages, okay? Then you have references. Those don't count as part of the 15 pages. Those are separate. Then you have a bunch of supplementary documents. So if you have a collaborator, you really need to have letters from them, okay? Uh, your department head or chair letter. You have to have now a data management plan. Um, if you have a postdoc on your budget, even part-time, you have to have a postdoc mentoring plan. So we'll, go, we'll talk about each of these things. Then the bio sketch, current and pending form, budget, budget justification, facilities and equipment. So there's a lot of stuff here. So you want to make sure you don't forget. Sometimes people get so uh, wrapped up in getting that project description done, they forget all about, oh my gosh, I have to have a bio sketch. So be sure to, in fact, some of that stuff, get it out of the way early. So get your bio sketch done before you get started the other stuff. Okay, format. So that's all in the grant proposal guide. NSF has on their website. That's the link. Okay. The big thing is the fonts. <laughs> this is a, okay, you have to have one inch all the way around margin, not half inch like NIH, one inch. Okay. Uh, your pages need to be numbered. Then the fonts. The big thing is now with the default, you know, the, the default font in Word now is Calibri. That's not allowed by NSF. So that, catch, that catches a lot of people. And this is what you can use. So you, Arial, Courier New, Palatino Linotype, uh, 10 points or larger, <laughs> Times New Roman, 11 points or larger. Okay, so, uh, and then computer mod, is that computer mod? That's Mac, right? Is that what that font is? I don't know those. But anyway, um, be sure you follow these because they will kick those things back because they don't want you to, you know, let somebody use a tiny font and get an unfair advantage. Yes? How likely, if something's off, how likely are they to uh, allow you to correct that? Sometimes they, they, uh, the they, they, will let you say. It depends on the division. So what happens is usually the division leader has their own philosophy about that. Some division leaders are, um, they hate to kick back proposals without reviewing them because they know, and so they will give you all kinds of of uh, uh, leeway. Um, some division leaders are more from the military point of view and they feel like if you can't follow directions they're going to kick you out. And so what can get people so sometimes is that you may be in a division that for a long time had a division leader who was very uh, lenient and so you have particularly you have some of your more senior faculty who've been very successful and they go oh I put in a 10 point all the time don't worry about it and well what happens division leader changes and then suddenly oh my gosh you get kicked out so just follow the directions. The big thing, though, is, I mean, just one thing to keep in mind is that um, this applies to your text. It does not apply to your tables, your figure captions, figure labels, all this stuff. So you can use different fonts for that. You can use whatever size you want. Just make sure it's legible. So, uh, you know, and then that's, that's something, you know, because there's no point in putting it in if a reviewer can't read it. But you also yes. should think about reviewer, like, making your reviewers happy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this project summary, uh, that's that first page. So we're starting to step through the sections is what I'm doing now. So the project summary, the first page, may be the only thing the reviewer reads. Okay, so particularly if they're not the primary reviewer, they're in the panel, this may be that. So it's really important. Um, you, I think it's a good idea to state your goals and objectives and hypothesis in the first or second paragraph. Not, don't put a whole lot of background, the need, you know, all that kind of stuff. Save that for your project description. Get cut right to the chase with a project summary because that's what's going to tell the reviewers what you're actually going to do. Um, 
Um, usually in the project summary, you don't have to put that in there. It's usually in the project description. If you can, if you can fit it, you could certainly put that in. Um, you know, make sure that the value of your project is really clear and compelling. You want to make sure that people feel like, you know, the world's going to be different after your project's done. Okay. It has to be written in third person because uh, like the, your, the rest of your proposal can be written in first person if you want. But the, the project summary, they're going to use some version of that for putting it on their website and so forth and it would look weird if it was I did this and I, I'm going to do that. So it needs to be third person. Okay, and you have to clearly address intellectual merit, broader, this is just in, all NSF proposals, and broader impact separately labeled paragraphs. Okay, so we'll say, what is that, right? So intellectual merit is what you would kind of expect, right? There, um, how well does your project advance knowledge and understanding? What new knowledge are you going to generate? Okay, um, how creative? Why is what you're doing different from what everybody else is doing? You know, how is this creative? How is this potentially transformative? That's the new thing. Well, not that new anymore. So that came from Congress, potentially transformative. Uh, and so that doesn't mean that everything that they're going to fund has to be potentially transformative. But if yours is potentially transformative, which means, I, I heard a good, someone made a good uh, description of what that means. It means, uh, will it change the textbook in the, your field? So is it really going to make a big difference? Um, if it is, then explain that. But don't just say, my project is potentially transformative, because all that does is irritate the reviewers, because they know that you're trying to, to BS them, right? So if it is, say it is, but it definitely needs to be novel, it needs to be original, it can't be like what everybody else is doing. And you have to, and you know, probably it's not, but the point is you have to explain that to the reviewers. Why is it what you're doing is different from what everybody else is doing? Okay, this is another one. How well conceived, organized, and in is the proposed activity, and will you have sufficient resources? This is something that people forget sometimes to point in. And particularly when they're talking in their intellectual merit in the project summary, if you have great collaborations, if you have a really unusual piece of equipment, anything like that, you know, point that out early. Don't wait until the bottom of page seven to let me know that you have a collaboration with this great scientist in Germany who's going to do this testing for you. Tell me right up in the very beginning because that really does go to if you're likely to succeed. How well qualified is the proposer to conduct the project? And that's another thing people tend to forget in their intellectual merit, is that you have to talk about why you're the right person to do it. Not only is this something that should be done, but are you the, why you're the right person to do it. And usually that has to do with what your, your preliminary data, your prior work, things that you've done before. All right, so what are broader impacts? Okay, how well, and this is, comes from the NSF GPG, how well does the project advance dis, uh, discovery while promoting teaching, training, and learning? So teaching, training, and learning are the big things. So how, how is it what you're doing is going to benefit students in your, your field? Also, um, how is it going to enhance infrastructure for research and education in your field, in your institution? Um, broadening participation of underrepresented groups, that goes back to diversity. Um, and also, how is it that what you're going to do is actually going to be disseminated? Not only just in publications, but how would it get to people who maybe aren't experts in your field? But it needs to impact people beyond just your little subfield. What are the benefits to society? So I think that with broader impacts, the thing to think about is, you know how politics is right now, okay? So say a congressman is reading that you just got this career proposal. You're, they're going to spend $450,000 on 
whatever, fill in your research, okay? And that congressman's gonna call the program officer and say, why is tax, why tax money being spent on dislocations in aluminum or whatever it is, right? And that, what is it, what is it that your program officer needs to respond? You know, why is it tax money should be spent on this? If you met your uncle at, a, at the barbecue and they said, oh, what are you doing now? And you said, I'm, you know, got $450,000 to do this. And they said, why, why are you doing that? Why should I spend my money on that? What would you say? So that's what Broader Impacts is about. All right, so on your, in your handout, there's, I'm gonna pull this up just so, it's a little bit hard to see because it's all uh, uh, annotated. Let me see. I don't know if it's gonna be any better here, but. All right. Okay, so this is an example of what I think is a really nice, uh, nice project description. So this is Jairo Sonova, he's in physics, Texas A&M, all these, these examples I pulled from people I worked with at Texas A&M who got careers. Um, and you can see one thing he did was he went right to his, his goals, his project goals. And he made them very clear, he made them very specific. He didn't say, I'm gonna develop a new model uh, related to spintronics. Because how many other proposals probably say, you know, they probably got a bunch of spintronic proposals in this program that year. So he needs to say, what's different about what he's doing than everybody else? And so he has specifics. And even though I have no background in spintronics, I can kind of tell what he, from what he wrote what he's gonna do, okay? So, and he says, you know, uh, He's gonna de develop a theory of, of spin transport and accumulation and spin orbit coupled systems. Um, and, uh, and then he talks about his uh, systematic uh, theory of the anomalous Hall effect. And so anyway, it's very specific, not a lot of background, not about, you know, spintronics has, you know, become very important and all these people are doing stuff in spintronics. That's, none of that's in here. He goes right to the objectives, which I think is really good. Then when you go down to the intellectual merit, um, he's, very clear about uh, what new knowledge he generates and it's in one sentence. And that's not easy a lot of times. I mean, when you're thinking about, okay, your project, what new knowledge are you gonna generate? How are you contributing to the field? Um, and he was, he, you know, and of course this took many drafts, but he has it down to one sentence, okay? And that, I think that really helps. And it then explains why it's significant, okay? It's gonna connect physical insights obtained through each approach into a unified, cohesive picture of spin transport and semiconductors. Um, so that's nice. And then he talks too um, about his methodology. So I think having some, some clue, obviously you can't go into a lot of detail about how you're gonna do this, but you need some clue about what your approach is gonna be. And particularly, hopefully it tells what's different about what your approach is and then someone else. And so he does that, he, again, it's just, it's very, you know, it's not a lot of detail, but says it will involve non-equilibrium Green's function calculations, phenomenological model calculations, and first principles calculations. That gives me an idea of what he's doing, okay? Then he also brings up his collaborators. He has some really good collaborators and experimental groups he's gonna work with, and he mentions that right up here, because that's part of the intellectual merit, that's part of the resources he's gonna have for his project. He also talks about his own uh, qualifications. Okay, this uh, it extends a naturally uh, a, a highly fertile line of leading research by the PI, who's generated many publications, top-ranked journals, so forth. So again, he he doesn't forget to talk about why he's the person to do this. He talks about why this should be done, but also why he's the person to do that. And I think that's very helpful. And we go down. 
All right, his broader impacts. He's specific about what he's going to do. It's not, I'm going to work to improve diversity. He actually says what his specific things he's going to do in his, his education component um, and mentions, and then of course mentions diversity. So those are all things I think that make this a really nice, um, strong uh, project summary. Oops, oh no, it took me back to the back. Front. Oh, hold on. Okay, all right. Project description, let's see. There we go. Oh, that's, I've already done this. Okay. Okay, all right. So the project description is that 15 pages. That's what you know, you're going to spend most of your time on, right? The big thing about NSF is they're very flexible. And this program, not, not all pro, you know, some programs, they're, they're much more prescriptive. But in this program, they're very flexible about how you do this. You can do it however you want. Just that you, if you already had NSF funding, you have to have that results of prior NSF support in there. But other than that, you do it how you want. But you're going to have to address all those uh, review criteria. and. Um, I, this, I, I think that typically what I see is something like this. So again, this is just a typical outline, but if it doesn't fit your project, you know, feel free to change it. So usually there's some sort of an introduction overview that talks about your goals and objectives um, and significance. There's some sort of a background that's sort of like a lit review. Uh, there's some sort of preliminary results. An experimental plan. Of course, you know if you're more if you're in math or you're doing something that's more uh, theoretical, you may not have an experimental plan. You may have, uh, you know, a different way of doing it. If you're going to derive something, uh, there's going to be an education plan. Usually, you'll talk about your broader impacts. A lot of times, those might be together: your education and broader impact. And some sort of and not well, a lot of people don't do this, but I really highly recommend a timeline of some kind. And that timeline might be move, you know, moved up or whatever, but this is typical of what you see um, in a lot of uh, winning project descriptions. All right, so I'm going to digress just for a minute to talk about philosophy. This is the uh, uh, philosophy of writing, okay? Um, I, usually there are like two, big, two general ways of writing a proposal. And one of them is what I call the incremental or storytelling approach. And this is sort of what people naturally do when you write, when you tell a story. Okay, when you're sitting around, you're at the bar talking to your friends, you talk about what happened when you're on your last trip to Las Vegas. You don't go right to the punchline, right? You start, you know, you build up, you give them some background, you know. And so that's what people tend to do with proposals. They kind of big, you know, they want to start at the beginning and build up, and then the payoff is at the bottom of page four, right? But the problem is that you're not in a bar with this reviewer. They are at two in the morning reading this after they've read three other proposals and after they've graded papers. And so you have a very different kind of audience. So if you start like this, so say, you know, somebody, they're going to be on a review panel. They go, oh my gosh, I'm going to Washington in three days. I still have these proposals to read. So they're finished reading, you know, they finished doing the grading for the class. It's 10 o'clock. They sit down, they start reading proposals. They get to yours at one in the morning. All right. And you start off saying, you know, for example, I'm going to pull a, a materials science uh, uh, example. So say, you know, um, carbon nanotubes were invented by Rick Smalley at Rice University in 1982. Um, they have really interesting um, chemical, the surface chemistry, and um, we're going to do, you know, we're, we're looking at trying to, to modify that surface chemistry. 
By this point, what do you think the reviewer, this is maybe you're there at 1.30 now. What do you think they're doing? You know, they're asleep. They're like, they don't even know why they're reading this, okay? And then you keep on, then you say, oh, we've gotten this kind of preliminary results. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. And then, then finally they go, oh, and the, what we're going to do is we're going to modify the surface chemistry of the carbon nanotubes so that we can change the way they agglomerate and we're going to be able to change the tailored properties of our material. And you go, oh! But you know what? He's already lost interest by that point. In fact, maybe he had have, have to go back and reread your preliminary results to even understand what they mean now that he finally understands where you're going with it. And so this is, a, I think, the danger of writing a proposal like you tell a story. Okay? So another way to do this is to blow your punchline, go right to it. So instead, what you do is what I call an overview and fill-in approach. So that first page and a half, you say, we're going to work with carbon nanotubes. We're going to change the surface chemistry by using changing pH, temperature, and we're going to uh, change the way they agglomerate. And then, and so we can do, do all this tailoring of, of properties, and that's going to totally change the way we make these materials. Oh my gosh! You know that was the first page and a half. So now the reviewer is interested. You know they're like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? In fact, that's what you want them to think. Why didn't I think of that? And then they start reading the rest of it, and they know where you're going. So then you talk about, okay. These are the you know this is what's been done to you know right to the to up to date and this is what we understand about surface chemistry of carbon nanotubes. This is what I've you know done so far. This shows that this is a, uh, a you know feasible idea and this is how I'm going to do the methodology and this is the testing we're going to do and so forth. Okay. So what that does is it makes it much easier for the reviewer to follow what you're doing because they know where you're going and they can skim some things if it's not really their area, but they understand what's important and what's not because they know. Uh, where you're going with your proposal. Okay, so this is so doing it this way. What I think you want to do that first up one to three pages is that introduction overview is give the reviewers an outline of what you're going to do in your whole project, so they understand where you're going. Okay, so after those first couple of pages, the reviewer needs to be really intrigued, excited about your idea. Uh, they should have a basic understanding of your project, why it's important. They um, should be convinced that what you're going to do is really cool. You know, it's a great idea. You really want to get them excited. That you want them to feel bad if they can't fund you. Okay, so that's a high bar. But you know, if you can do that in those first couple of pages, then you've already got their. You know, they, they have an attitude, and I think you'll find as you start to review, if you haven't already started reviewing, serving as a reviewer, maybe at NSF, as you know, once you read this project summary in the first couple of pages, you already have an attitude. And your attitude is either, oh, this is interesting. Let's see if they can really do what they say they're going to do. Let me look at all this other stuff. Or, uh, this is, I don't really want to read the rest of this proposal. So what you want is that first attitude, right? So this is what you, you really want to work on in those first couple pages. Not a lot of background, not a lot of setting the stage, uh, you know, kind of discussing the need, but really giving them an idea of where you're going with this. And so an example of that you'll see in your handout number five. And I won't pull that up, but do you see that uh, that's on the back here? Okay, so this is, this is actually that example of the carbon nanotubes, okay? So um, what happened here, Jamie Grunlin, the PI, what he did, you know, at the beginning of this process when he was first writing his drafts for this proposal, um, it was really hard to follow because uh, there was a lot going on. There were a lot of variables. He was doing all these different things. He was going to look at temperature. He was going to look at pH. He was going to look at light. It was, you know, and it was really confusing. So what he ended up doing was uh, putting this in at the beginning, setting the stage, and 
then it made it much easier to follow the rest of the proposal. I think it's nice that he put a figure on the first page. I mean, not that, that you have to do that, but certainly if, it, if your project lends itself to that. Um, one big advantage of doing that is, you know, when you think about it, a reviewer has read maybe 10, 15 proposals. He goes, and that he, as primary reviewer, he goes to his panel, and he's got to present these proposals, and maybe there are three or four on carbon nanotubes. Um, he looks at this one, he knows exactly, he sees that figure, he knows exactly which one that is. So it, sometimes it can be confusing. Sometimes you think, oh gosh, which one was this? So it's nice that uh, you know, he has this and it actually does, you know, the figure takes up quite a bit of space, so it really does tell you something. So you want to make sure if you do put a figure in like this, it actually is not just a, one of those generic Venn diagrams or something, that it really tells somebody something. Any questions about that? So yes. Oh, you certainly, yes, you certainly can. He did not do it for the, in his particular one, but yeah, in fact, that's a, that's very, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I think that, I think that generally you do put, uh, he has his goal, and then um, he puts in, uh, he discusses what his research questions are, he discusses um, the significance of his approach, the novelty of his approach, and a lot of people do put numbered objectives. He, he didn't, he, he saved that for the beginning of his research plan, but I think uh, normally that, you would put that in there. And I think that's another thing I just want to, how many of you are in engineering? All right, so this is another thing that you want to be really aware of in engineering, I think it's a big pitfall, is that you, know, you have to remember that NSF is a hypothesis-driven basic research agency. So even though they, pay, they fund lots of engineering, lots of stuff that has lots of applications, you have to remember that you're talking about generating new knowledge, not generating a new widget. So if you're, you know, and lot, you know, I'm an engineer, I know which, you know, where you're coming from, a lot of times you're doing research that is about generating a new sensor, generating a new material, whatever it is. But what you want to talk about is what knowledge is missing that, that allows you to generate that new, knowledge, new uh, widget. Okay, so you have to focus on the research questions, not on the piece of hardware or whatever it is you're gonna end up with for NSF. You know, if you're going to DOD, that's totally different. But for NSF, be sure you have a hypothesis, you have research questions, or else you'll get dinged for being too applied. So that's just something to remember. Yes? On that first one, yes, and, and, and actually he has, he has a really strong education component. I think it, a lot of times it is a good idea to include that in that first page and a half. He did in his summary, and then he did later on, but yeah, I think a lot of times it is a good idea to include it. Okay, so when you go on to your background, um, you want to think about, okay, not only what is the current state of knowledge, but how does this relate to your project? Okay, so that's the one thing I think that sometimes gets lost is it's very easy to write this big, long, basically a review paper, you know, on because and particularly I think for people who have just recently done their dissertation, this is on the same field. You've, you, this is so easy to write, you know. You can go in and talk from 1959, this happened, 1962, this happened, and you're going to lose your reviewers. You have to connect it to what are the holes in knowledge and how your research will fill them. It, it always needs to keep coming back to your project, not just a discussion of the history of your, your particular subfield. Okay. You do need to cite important work, though. I mean, if it's, there's a seminal paper and you leave it out, boy, the reviewers will jump all over that. And you have to think about who might likely be a reviewer. So if you're in a relatively small field, 
or subfield, and you think, oh, you know, probably so and so or someone in this field, you know, from this university is going to be in there, cite their papers because they'll, they, if, if it's, you know, assuming, assuming it's relevant, because if you leave out somebody's papers that are relevant to what you did and you say nobody's done work in this area, oh, they are going to get you, okay, it's in the review. So be sure if there's something that's relevant and you think they're likely to be reviewers to cite their papers. Um, and the other thing to keep uh, in mind, too, is don't be dismissive of other people's work. You know, you want to say, yeah, I'm going to do great new things and everything, but you don't want to say nobody's done anything of any value up till now. Because who are going to be the reviewers? Are all those people who did nothing, things of no value. So you, you know, we certainly want to be um, uh, very respectful of the work that's already been done. Okay, typically this is like three or four pages. Again, these are just rules of thumb. It may vary. But what I see a lot of times is because it's so easy to write for people, particularly who just recently finished their dissertation, they'll go on and on and on this section. And then they'll have three pages left to write about what they're going to do. And that doesn't work. So you really want to make sure that it's pretty concise. It sets the stage, but uh, it doesn't take up over half of your, your 15 pages. All right, preliminary data. Sometimes you people fold this into your background, so you talk about you know what's been done, and then I did this. But just be careful because sometimes that can get lost. It can be, get lost what you did versus what other people did, and you want to get credit for what you did. You know, make sure it's really clear because people read. I mean, it can be frustrating, but you know, reviewers are reading this. They're tired. They've already read three or four proposals, and they'll miss stuff. You want to make it so easy for them. So you know, if you have a significant amount of preliminary data, have a separate section so it's really clear that you have it. Because you know, nothing's more frustrating than them coming back and saying, "Oh gosh, you know, I wish you had preliminary data and it was right there, right?" But sometimes that happens. Um, summarize the significance of your preliminary data right up front. Okay, don't ex don't give them just a whole bunch of graphs and tables and stuff, and and then expect them to draw conclusions about what it means. Tell them what it means. They won't be insulted. Just you know, explain to them. Well, the big thing I think is, I'm going to keep saying over and over in the writing your, your project description is um, you don't want to leave it to the reviewer to have to synthesize the information. You want to synthesize and spoon feed it to them so that you want, so because you want them to come to a conclusion that, you want, that you're trying to, to give them, not have them come to their own conclusions. So if you turn the page here on that handout, You'll see a nice example of this. This is someone who was working on a career, and it was um, she had a ton of preliminary data. Um, and she was doing imaging work, microscopy work, and and um, uh, it, you, what she ended up doing is just putting this stuff, just stepping the reviewers through their her preliminary data at the very beginning. So she said, "Okay, uh, in summaries, these results are." A, integration of the proposed microscope system has already been started and is feasible, figure three, and that shows her figure. And uh, you know, she just dem I demonstrated the ability to image live cells, figure four. Um, you know, I can do the, you know, I can conduct quanti quantitative topography measurements, figure five. So she's really explaining, this is what this is telling, telling me or telling you, that this preliminary data. And I think that's a really good idea. The other thing to keep in mind is um, for NSF, you don't have to go into as much detail, particularly if you've already published your data. Um, you don't have to go NIH. They tend to want to know. They've gotten a little better now that they've changed the page numbers. But you know, they tend to want to know every little, you know, what temperature you did something in, and you know, how many how many subjects and so forth. NSF doesn't need all that that information. You want to give them the key information. If it's already been published, you can cite the publication. Just say the conclusions. You don't have to go into a whole lot of detail, particularly if you don't have a lot of room. Um, and also you'll, you'll lose people uh, in that, sometimes in that in the detail. 
Uh, be careful about the royal we. A lot of times, you know, I'll read a proposal and it says, you know, we did this, we did that, and it wasn't clear. Was we, you know, I and my advisor? Was we, I and my students? Was we, you know, I and my colleagues? That makes a big difference. If you did something with your advisor, that's, a, that's really different from doing stuff with your students. So make it really clear, you know, who did that work? Okay. Again, when you get to your research plan, give a concise overview, and this is where you, you probably talk about what tasks are, what your objectives are, and like I said, you can certainly put your objectives at the very beginning too. But when you're going to more specific, your objectives, your required tasks, um, what your overall approach is, do all that before you launch into all the detail because then people again have a kind of an idea of where you're going before they have to go through all the nitty gritty of everything. And this is particularly true because this is a five-year project, so there's a lot to, to understand. There's usually a lot of times there's, there's several different lines of inquiry, different kinds of testing, different kinds of things you're going to be doing. So showing them the overview of how it's all going to fit together first is really, um, I think, very helpful to reviewers. Don't forget your collaborators. Mention them right up front. Don't wait until you, know, you get to their task. Mention them from, because that is an, an advantage to you. So you don't want them to, to miss that. So if you switch it over to handout number seven, this is, uh, again, from the same, uh, the, the carbon nanotube proposal, but you can see he gives a nice, and it's, it doesn't take that much room, but he gives a nice overview of, uh, you know, where he's going. He uh, has three phases. He has um, a bunch of collaborators going to give him materials that are hard to get, and, and he mentions all that right up front before the reviewer falls asleep. Um, and he also, because, and this is something when I think we'll talk about this in a little bit, but um, you know, when you have a complicated research plan, a lot of times you have different prong, you know, you have parallel tasks, you have things you're going to do, and then you're going to bring it all together at the bottom, all that kind of stuff. That's hard for a reviewer to follow in text because text is linear. You, do, you read one thing, we, but and a lot of this stuff is not linear. It's really, uh, you know, uh, it's parallel. So what, this is where a flow chart, a diagram, something can really make a difference. If you have complex ideas, it, you want to make it, you know, it needs, to, it needs to be something that is, you know, easy for the reviewer to read. It can't be, you know, one of those things where people have a million little, little boxes and arrows going everywhere and they, you know, shrink it down and it's eight point font. But, you know, you want to have, it, it really helps the reviewer if they see the whole structure of what you're trying to do and using figures can really help that. So it's something to keep in mind. Okay. Then when you're talking about your research plan, this is where a lot of times people do a great job up to this point. Um, they set the stage, they, you know, talk about the significance of their work, it's really exciting. But then when they come to the plan, they kind of fizzle out and they kind of say, well, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, we're going to look at this phenomenon, then we're going to look at that phenomenon, and at the end of five years, we'll know something. So it, it, you need to be very specific, and I know it can be a little frustrating, because sometimes with a five-year program, you know, it's hard to know where, you, where things are going to go, right? But you really have to talk step-by-step step about how you're going to accomplish your goals, okay? Um, and because reviewers, you know, they, I, I know one senior faculty told me, he says, well, if it were, it's research. If I knew what I was doing, it wouldn't be research, right? So, but you're asking people to give you money. So they want to know what you're going to do with that money and, you know, how you're going to actually do your, accomplish your goals. So uh, someone called it, you know, when you don't do that, it's called a trust me proposal and those don't work. If you're, you know, if you're really senior, you've done a lot of stuff, you might be able to get away with a trust me proposal, but for new faculty, you got to really tell them what you're going to do in detail. But then on the other hand, you can't drown them in 
in uh, detail. So it's, uh, it's really a tough balance and that's why you have to start writing pretty early. It's because you're not going to get it the first draft through. It's going to be a lot of trying to balance. Do I give them enough information versus um, do I drown them in so many details they're going to get lost. Okay. Usually reviewers will look for more details those first two or three years because that, you know, that shows where you're starting. And they know at four or five, year four or five, things may change. Um, so you know, if you, you're putting details in, kind of front-loaded, um, certainly you have to have a plan for those last couple of years, but the details are, are, are more expected earlier on in the project. Okay. If you have any showstoppers, be sure and talk about them. How are you going to, you know, so if you're going to get a, you know, if you get a negative result at the end of, you know, the second year, how are you going to deal with that? If you know, if it's possible something could go either way and you only talk about it's going one way, then the reviewers are going to really uh, jump on that. Because like I said, they're always looking for some kind of hole that will allow them to throw your proposal out and they have fewer proposals to deal with after that. So, and they're not trying to be mean, you know, it's just that here you are, you're a reviewer, you've got this big stack of proposals and you've got this much money. How are you going to do, how are you going to get, you know, whittle them down? And so looking for any kind of uh, possible showstopper, anything that you might not have considered is one thing that they can do. And then they feel comfortable with that and they can point that out, say, you'll deal with it and, you know, give us another proposal next year. So anyway, sometimes people hope that reviewers won't notice the showstoppers, but they do, they really do look for those. All right. If you need special resources, like, you know, a special instrument, special cell line, that kind of stuff, explain how you're going to get it, because again, that's something they jump on. So if you have some special material you need that's hard to get, discuss how you're going to do that. Um, you know, discuss the role of your collaborators, why, what their qualifications are, how they're going to help you, and then refer to your letters of collaboration. Yes? People do can ask for big amounts of money. Usually, you know, okay, if it were 15, 20, that's usually not a problem. And when you're getting up to 50, you need to talk to the program officer for because there's several things about that. One is, you know, it's a, it's a significant part of your your funding for that year. So how are you going to deal with the you know with the shortfall? So if you're, do you really have enough money for that? And also just make sure that they agree that this is something that they would be willing to support. So pro, definitely talk to the program officer before. It depends a lot on the field. Sometimes people are very used to spending a lot of money on equipment in, in a particular field, and they may be fine with that. Um, another thing people sometimes do is that's where collaborators come in. If it's a piece of equipment that you only need for part of your project, you know, you can, can uh, recruit a collaborator who has that who's willing to let you use the equipment. Something to keep in mind. Okay, grantsmanship. So I, I like there was a, somebody had a, a, a saying that there's no amount of grantsmanship can, that can make a, a bad idea a good idea, but there are lots of ways to obfuscate a good idea. So you want to make sure that your idea shines through. So again, as I said before, you know, using flow charts, tables, figures, schematics to um, communicate complex ideas, you have to be strategic about it because they do take room. Um, but definitely, uh, I think it helps a lot. And reviewers, you know, I've heard review people who review a lot, you know, say that when they turn a page and they see a figure, it's like a gift. They're like, oh God, less, less text I have to read. So, I mean, I think that as long as the, the charts really communicate something, um, that I think it's a really good idea to keep them and get them in there. And the other thing is sometimes, particularly with something complex, having a table will actually take less 
space than trying to describe the whole thing in text. So, and remember, you can make those fonts on the table smaller. Um, they need to be legible, but what I find is a lot of times you can go down to Arial 9 point and still have a perfectly legible table where you wouldn't be able to read text that small. So you can keep that in mind. But then, too, remember figures. What I see a lot on figures is particularly, say, a micrograph, something from, you know, is um, where they, um, you know, you have a nice figure. It was probably this big, right? And they have all these little labels, different parts of the cell or whatever. And then they just shrink it down to 10%, right? And put it in there. And you can't read any of the labels. You have to go back and put new labels on because, again, if, it, if they can't read it, they don't understand it. One thing, it makes them irritable, and the reviewers. And then also, there's no point in having it in there if they can't uh, read it. Um, having headings. Subheadings to help them navigate is huge. I think that really makes a big difference. Um, a lot of times, you know, you can go to down to that, you know, 10-point aerial um, if you have lots of white space. And having those headings and subheadings helps them find things because you have to remember that they um, are going to be in, in a panel and somebody's going to say, well, you know, how are they going to do this test too? What kind of testing are they going to do? And they've got to flip through that proposal and find that information. So have, making it clear, making it easy for them to find is really um, important. Uh, figure captions. I think in, you know, this is probably my engineer background, but um, when I used to work in aerospace, when we put in proposals to Department of Defense, and of course, this is these reviewers, Department of Defense, these are all military kind of guys, but uh, we tried to have it so you could read the, just the figures of the table, of the, of the, uh, all the, the captions of all the figures, and you know what the proposal was about. So having figure captions that actually tell the reviewer what you want them to get from that figure, I think is very helpful. Not, you know, not two paragraphs, but uh, concise. So that you're not saying, um, here's a picture of this specimen. But this figure, this picture shows that this specimen is da 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 So make sure it's clear to them what you want to get from that. Um, bold, italics, underline, you don't want to overdo it. It can be hard to read a, you know, a page that's you know, every other sentence is bolded. But I think that for important things, I think that's a really good way to go, to put to bold or, or underline or something, the, you know, your goals, your objectives, your statement of innovation, things to make, again, make it easy for them to find these things, because these are the things that they're going to have to put in their review sheet. So we went through what the criteria were before. Um, the reviewer is going to get this little, you know, sheet that they have to put in. Well, how is this novel? How is this innovative? Um, if you say in one sentence, this is innovative because X, Y, and you know the innovative is bolded, then it's easy for them to find. They'll copy and paste that right into their um, uh, their review sheet. If, on the other hand, and sometimes I talk to people, it's like you know you don't explain why what you're doing is novel. They say, well, you know, it's sprinkled throughout the whole 15 pages. I discuss novelty; it's all in there. Well, the problem is they have to put it on their review sheet in one or two sentences. So now you're making the reviewer at two in the morning figure it out. So you don't want to do that. You want to figure out for them a nice, strong sentence about why what you're doing is novel, why it's significant, all those kinds of things, and uh, you know, putting it where they can find it and tagging it so that it's easy for them to find. Um, some, now I do talk sometimes to some people who are viewers. I think it's sort of a generational thing where they just hate bold and italics underline. And you may run into people like that. It may be discipline. You know, disciplines have a little bit different feeling. I notice biologists tend to bold everything, underline everything in NIH proposals. Um, but in general, I find most people do appreciate it if it's not uh, overdone. All right, so writing your education plan. This is going to seem a little redundant when we talked about planning. But this is, these are the things that you want, this is kind of the way you want to approach writing this section. 
Okay, be sure you have specific goals and objectives. What is it you're trying to accomplish? Goal may be more general. You know, I want to improve critical thinking of my students. Your objective would be to um, change, you know, use this new method to teach this one particular class that's going to impact these students and help them become better critical thinkers. Okay, uh, you know, why are you doing that? Because, you know, I've noticed in my classes that, you know, kids are not, don't have critical sk thinking skills. They really need this for their careers don't, and so forth. Um, what is the state of knowledge? What is, well, research has been done on critical thinking and we found that these things are, you know, this, these things contribute to critical thinking. This is the way that we found that, you know, that, that education researchers have found to have, have helped to enhance critical thinking. You, again, citing, just like you do, you take it just as seriously as your research, you're citing the literature, you're looking at what has already been done, you're building on that. Um, do you have preliminary results? Oh, I already tried some of these things in my classroom and I found uh, that this seemed to work. Or even if it's not on that, you know, you're also going to be doing things in diversity. Have, do you, have you mentored some minority students? Or have you done, big, participated in some high school, you know, camps where people come and do science here? Or whatever. Mention that because it shows that you have interest. You're not just saying you're going to do this to get the money, that you've already done this. Conversely, the other thing you have to think about is a lot of these things, any of these education things, when you start thinking about what you really want to do, um, don't require a lot of money. And you can go ahead and get started on some of this. You can try little things. You know, if you're going to try a new way to mentor undergrads in doing research in your lab, or you, you want to connect with some, uh, uh, some high school students who are coming in for summer programs, you can go ahead and talk to Office of Proposal Development, find out who you need to talk to, see if there's something you can do now. Then that can be part of preliminary results. If you don't get funded this year, that can be part of next year's um, proposal. It's, I think, a lot more convincing to see that somebody's already done some of these things uh, rather than, boy, if I get money, I might do this. Right? Um, how will you assess whether you're successful? So I think we talked about that before, but have that plan, discuss that, you know, in critical thinking. How do you? How do you test whether they become better critical thinking thinkers? Actually, that's a lot of education research has been done. There are instruments to test that, and so that's how working somebody in education who you know might be your collaborator might help you to, to use some of those tests. Um, and then, how will you disseminate your results? Wow, I had great results with uh, teaching these kids to be, uh, have better critical thinking skills. I'm going to put this on a website. I'm going to share it on some of the open education websites. I'm going to write an article in the education journal for my field, in physics or engineering or whatever, and uh, talk about it. Those are all things where what you're doing is going to help uh, advance education, the state of education generally in your field. And that's what NSF is looking for. So really, I think the whole point, and I think uh, you probably figured this out by now, for education is just to, to approach it the same way you do research. Uh, sometimes what people tend to do is think, oh, this is an add-on. I just have to say that um, I'm going to, uh, you know, mentor some minority kids or I'm going to um, uh, make a new class and that's all I have to do. But it really is, they're looking for the kind of rigor. I mean, obviously, you don't have to be an education researcher, but it's still, you need to uh, approach it with that kind of um, seriousness. All right, the scope, okay, everybody always asks, well, how long does that education plan have to be? They say they count education and research the same, but they don't expect you to have half of your proposal on the education plan, okay? It depends a lot on the mission of your institution. You guys are a research-intensive institution, so you're going to have mainly research and then a smaller education, uh, you know, as far as number of pages. Um, if you were a uh, education, intensive, then you might have more a bigger education uh, component because that fits with the mission of your institution. So typically, I see for a research intensive institution, maybe three or four pages is typical. 
uh, but not seven or eight, not, not half the proposal. Um, okay, assessment. If people always ask about, so I add another slide here on this assessment. Again, you know, it needs to be a follow clearly from your objectives. So, you know, you have clear measurable objectives. How are you going to uh, meet those objectives? Dissemination, how will other educators benefit? And then there's an there's a education example in your handout. All right, any questions? Okay, I know I'm going fast, but we only have 10 minutes left. So, all right. So uh, reference cited, okay, so like I said, that was a separate section uh, and it doesn't count, there's no page limit. Um, they, whatever format you use for your discipline, that's typical, just use that, they don't have any requirements. The only thing they do require is that you include the be beginning and ending page numbers and they can sometimes be picky about that. So on, on you know, articles, journal articles. One big thing that people for, don't realize, this is a relatively new rule, um, is you cannot put a URL, a link, in your project description. What you can do is you can reference it and then put it in your references. So reference it just like it would be a paper and then put it in your references. But the reason for that is they feel that people were trying to um, get around the page limitation by having a, a, a link within the project description to more work. So uh, that's what they have that. Um, uh, okay, I've got to get that. Okay, uh, and as I said before, be sure and cite the important works and works of likely reviewers. You know, the, if you don't cite a, a seminal work, and you know, sometimes they'll just jump all over you. Think, boy, this person doesn't even know our field. So, particularly if your degree is not exactly, you know, doesn't fit in the particular program, you think the reviewer is going to pretty much come. You're civil engineering, and these are mainly um, materials people, or vice versa. Be sure that you, you know, make it clear that you understand what's been done up till now, and you cite the seminal works. All right, letters of collaboration. So if you have collaborators, be sure you include letters, because sometimes reviewers will feel like, well, I'm not, I don't really convinced that this person's really going to do this. Um, and, and add, you know, refer to them when in text. When you talk about collaborators, they please see letter so that they don't miss it. Uh, be sure, though, that it's not a letter of support. Used to be they would allow these letters of support. Boy, this person is a great, you know, researcher, really like him, you know, that kind of, no, they don't like that, okay. Or even, boy, I work at this, you know, I'm, I'm at, uh, you know, I work for the water authority in our city and we would really love this research, it's going to be very helpful. That's, that's a letter of support. They can't, they don't, they'll send them back to you now. So what you have to have is a letter of collaboration. I work at the Water Authority and I'm going to provide uh, internship, you know, uh, opportunities to the students as part of the education plan. That would be a letter of collaboration. I have, you know, a uh, um, NMR and I'm going to let this person use it to do these tests. Or I have expertise in education and I'm going to, you know, work with them and advise them on this part of their project. It needs to be very specific and it needs to be something that they're going to do for you to help you be successful. I think a good idea for letters of collaboration, write the draft, uh, first draft yourself, because a lot of these people may not really know how to write a letter for NSF, you know, and um, just write a, a first draft, but send it to them and say, you know, just edit this however you want, but just to make sure that there's stuff, you know, all the, the, the key information is in there. All right, uh, budget. So, you know, it's not really that much money, you know, $100,000 a year about, 
Uh, it, but, but I have to say, that's really, it depends on your program because they have a minimum, not a maximum. And it really depends on the, you know, mainly at the directorate level, the cultures are different. So engineering, they fund tons of careers. This is the big thing for their young, you know, junior faculty. And they um, will fund you right at that lowest level generally, okay? Geosciences, 600K, 650K. Biology, 1.2 million. Depends, but they don't fund, bio biology doesn't fund very many of those. So they, but they, if they like you, they'll fund a huge amount. So you have to look and talk to the people and your colleagues, talk to the um, program officer to find out what's, you know, what is possible and what, what, what they, is customary for your particular program and division. Um, okay, so typically, if you're talking about around that 500, 600K, you're talking about, uh, you know, salary for one summer month for you and a grad student, um, money for your education component, a little travel money. When you go, to, when you travel, try to bring your students with you. Undergrads, that's even better if they can you know, get them to present a, a, a poster or something at a conference. That's really nice. So including money for that kind of stuff. So not a huge amount of money. And so this is why you really want to work on your budget in parallel with everything else. So you make sure that you're scoping things right uh, so you don't get a nasty shock when you finally write your budget and find out your way over. Oh, keep in mind too for your un if you have a do you guys have a undergraduate research programs like where they get they get like uh, credit okay if, if for some people if if you need to add undergrads who are not in that program or if it's for people who are in other institutions where they don't have it you can actually just pay them hourly put that in the budget ten dollars an hour ten hours a week to work in your lab and that's another way to go all right your budget justification okay you have up to three pages to write this and what this is is if you look at the okay usually what happens is within the institution you have this big spreadsheet and that you'll you know you work with your uh, office of sponsored projects or your proposal development people will help you with this too um, and it has all this detail in there well that actually has to get collapsed into the NSF form which really doesn't have that much detail and so when they look at that they get a general idea of the categories but like equipment you gotta you know you need to talk to them in this budget justification explain what this money is really going to be spent on. So, uh, and this, you know, a lot of times people kind of do this at the last minute, but this is really actually an additional three pages to talk about your project. So take advantage of it. So things like, um, discussing, you know, what your grad student will be, do if they're going, if you're going to have travel money for them to go to conference, mention which conference they're going to go to and you know they're going to present the results if you're going if your education component involves you know is a little bit complex maybe you have to spend money on various things as outreach component where you're going to do all these things you know discuss that discuss all the you know that you show that you've actually thought this through so you're going to bring in um, so i worked on a recent on a career where uh, that she was bringing in students from various rural districts uh, girls to do uh, a summer physics pro you know program and she had to, you know she had to deal with transportation she had to deal with lunches all that sort of stuff she put that all in her budget and talked about it in her budget justification it was much more compelling because you realize she had really thought this through she didn't just sort of throw this out there oh yeah I'm gonna bring in some some kids she's really thought it through and knew uh, and talked about which schools are coming from and how far it is she could put all that in her budget justification and not have to spend a lot of time on it in her or space on it in her project description all right department head letter these reviewers always tell me these are really important. They really look at these. And again, that's part of that. We're going back to the very beginning of the, of the talk where I was talking about how they're trying to change the culture, do a little social engineering. They want to see that you are really going to get support from your department head. 
Um, you want to make it clear that your department head or chair has read what you're proposing. So make sure that they've read a draft, they understand what you're doing. Um, if it's a generic, gee, you know, this, is, this person's a great researcher and we hope they're, they're successful, that's not going to do it. They need to say what they're actually, uh, what you're actually doing and that they understand it and support it. Uh, there's also some language from the solicitation they have to talk about your eligibility. Um, and they need to talk about how they're supporting you and that is not cost share. They're not supposed to be giving your money if you get this, this, but what are they already doing? What do they plan to do as far as, you know, that you can put in, you know, what your startup was, you know, your lab space, any special equipment you got. Um, you can talk about, for your education component, if you need, you know, you need to be able to, to teach a new class, that they're going to support you in that. Um, if they're providing any other help with the, the education and outreach, maybe that your department's already doing some things and they're going to help you, you know, and that part of that is going to be helping you. You're doing some recruitment work and they're going to have their, their you know, office people help you with that. Those are all things, all kinds of support that are going to help you be successful. They also have to discuss how you're going to be mentored. This is another uh, thing. I think the NSF is, is a little frustrated with universities. A lot of them are not very good about mentoring their, you know, their junior faculty. Um, and so they're putting their feet to the fire by having them discuss how is it they're going to mentor you. So maybe your, you have, your department has a formalized plan, maybe it's informal, but they need to discuss it in some detail how that's going to be done. Um, and then they have to talk about how your project is uh, going to support the goals of the department, showing how it's aligned, how what you're doing is something they want to do, not only the research, but also the education part. And if you look at your handout, uh, let's see, not the next one, but at the very back, Okay, you have an electronic version of this, which would probably be easier to read. This is an example annotated. This is a one page now. This, this is actually from a few years ago. Uh, they, now they're allowing two pages because they added that mentoring requirement. So, but you can see in this one, this person, you know, this department had actually said, you know, specifically what the proposal, what, the, what he was going to do, talked about how it um, connected to the goals of the department, um, and talked about the support that they're giving this PI. So that th those are all things that make this a nice, strong letter. All right. Okay, other forms. Uh, format, your two-page your two bio-sketch, the format's there. Follow it religiously. I know somebody who uh, they had a, they actually had been funded on a career, but they put in another NSF proposal, and they put, instead of 10 publications, they put in 11. You're allowed to put in 10. They kicked it out without review. So they can be really picky. So just um, uh, you know, follow the rules. Current and pending, that's all your external funding from whatever agencies. You have to talk about that or pending proposals. Um, your facilities and instrumentation, that's not everything that's in your department or everything you own, but just the, the, the key things that are really going to help you in this project. Data management plan, I bet the pro your proposal development group can help you with that because now every NSF proposal has to have that. It basically talks about how, what kind of data you're going to generate and how are you going to um, uh, make sure it's available beyond the life of your project. Um, and a lot of times libraries are now helping with that. So I ask them what you, what you guys are doing here on that. Uh, postdoc mentoring plan, I just want to make sure if you have a postdoc on your budget that um, they're not, you're not using them as, and abusing them as slaves, right? That you're actually helping them to be, you know, because that was a, from the Congress, this came from Congress, they felt that the, you know, that the postdocs were being abused and they weren't being mentored and so you're going to show, talk to them about how you're going to mentor your postdoc to be successful in their career. All right, so you finished a draft, um, you want to ask a lot of people to read it, more people you have read it the better, 
work with your proposal development group. They're an invaluable resource. Um, work with people who are in your field. You look for technical weaknesses. Um, make sure you have enough time to really redo it because you may get back the feedback that, oh my gosh, you know, this is really disorganized. I can't follow it and you want to reorganize it. So if you only have two weeks left, it's not enough time. Okay, submitting your proposal, you have to update it in, uh, uh, it needs to be uploaded into Fastlane, you'll have help with that. Um, there's also routing and so forth, so be sure there's plenty of time. Um, you can include suggestions for reviewers, that's a good idea if you know somebody that's, you know, they can't be, you know, your, your best buddy or anything or your spouse, but uh, as long as there's not, a, you know, people that, that not, might know your work, particularly if you're in a kind of a field that's uh, not as broad, um, that's a good idea to include that. Um, and submit early. Okay, the review process. It varies by division. It can be, you know, usually it's a combination. It can be a panel. Uh, it can be ad hoc mail reviews. If it's mail reviews, then um, those people tend to be like selected because they're experts in your field. But if it's a panel, which they're going more and more to panels, um, they may, they're going to be in your discipline, but they could be in a very different part of the field. So make sure that your, your proposal is is something that's understandable by people who are not experts in your field. They'll rate your proposal, excellent, very good, good, fair, poor, um, and then they provide a recommendation. The different, the terminology varies by division, but something like, you know, high priority fund, fund if possible, do not fund. Well, in our budget climate, if you don't get, if you get a fund if possible, that means you're not going to get funded. It, it really has to be a high priority fund. Then, but that's only a recommendation. It goes to the program officer, then they actually decide who they're going to fund based on the recommendations, but also they're like a, an investor. They're investing in a portfolio of projects based on what they're trying to accomplish in their program. And so if they already have, you know, three carbon nanotube projects, they're probably not going to, even though four of them were rated excellent, they're not going to fund all of them. They're going to fund, you know, a few of them, and they're going to fund some other things too, because they want to have a broad, diversified portfolio. Same thing. They're going to fund people, uh, people from predominantly undergraduate institutions, minority-serving institutions, that kind of stuff. So, it, we, you know, they, they're not going to fund everybody from, you know, Berkeley. So uh, there, is, there is a lot of variety, but they're not going to reach down to the bottom of the pile. All the proposals that are going to be funded are going to be really <coughs> well rated. So that's what you can control. You can't really control what the program officer uh, is, is going to choose, but you can control that you're, you're well rated. Okay. So he works down the list until he runs out of money. I uh, may figure out a way to squeeze an extra project out. Sometimes that's by looking at the, say he's, they've funded four projects and they're going to come back to them and say, you know, can you cut out some of that travel? And then maybe they get enough money to fund one more. Sometimes that might be yours. So you, if you don't hear for a long time, sometimes that's what's happening. They're, you're on the edge of being funded. They're trying to get the money together. Um, it can take a while. If you do get funded, be happy. Think about supplements. You can, once you're funded, there's lots of other things you can do. These are links to these various things. These are nice building blocks for your next proposal because a lot of those are broader impacts kinds of things where you, for example, host a, a, a faculty uh, from a, a predominantly undergraduate institution in your lab that's doing collaborative work with you, that kind of thing can really help you. Um, so if they, you do get funded, a lot of times what you'll do is you'll get a, a call from your program officer telling you that they've recommended you for funding, but they haven't actually, it's not official. Uh, then it has to go through this whole approval process at NSF. Um, they have to negotiate with your institution's grants office. It'll take forever and you'll think that maybe you dreamed the whole thing. So it really, you know, once they tell you that you are going to get funded at the career, for other, other bigger programs sometimes it doesn't get, go through, but 
for a career you are going to go ahead and tell everybody go ahead and go out to dinner um, because by the time you hear the official you'll be tired of it by that point you're there but oh you got a career you're like yeah 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 that was five months ago so um, you know just be happy if you do get funded uh, but they may come back and ask you to for adjustments in your budget and so that is that hard that process to get a little more, more money to fund somebody else so just be aware of that uh, if you don't get funded okay read the reviews get upset everybody gets upset um, you know remember though that even if you talk to the most successful scientists they have a drawer full of unfund of declined proposals that's just part of the process it's going to happen to everybody don't take it personally um, don't call a program officer don't do anything put the reviews away for a day, couple of days then read the reviews carefully and talk to the and, and talk to the program officer so first you have to figure out did the reviewers have particular concerns that you can address? If that's the best possible thing, they all had problems with, you know, one, your, your goal number two, how you were going to do this test. Well, that's easy to fix. You cut it out, you change it, you do more work, you get generate preliminary data, you explain it better, whatever. So that's really good. Um, were the reviewers just confused? And that, that's probably just the way you wrote it, and you, you just need to work with having people read it and fine-tuning your, your text so they um, uh, understand what you're doing. Were they just not very impressed with the novelty of your, of your research? Well, there's two things there. Could be that your research just isn't novel enough. Maybe it is plumbing some area that's just been you know, explored for too long. Or maybe you didn't write it well enough. Maybe you need to, to explain better why it's novel, why it's significant. Um, this is the most, I think, frustrating thing. The reviewers were generally favorable. They said, oh, this is good research. This person done, you know, has really good qualifications. Um, fund if possible. Oh, and you didn't get funded. So that's, um, this is where really talking to program officer can help a lot because they can tell you where you were. Sometimes they'll say, you know what, you were the next one to get funded and I ran out of money. You know, just resubmit next year. And of course, you're not going to just resubmit. You're going to keep working on it and fine-tuning it and getting more data. But still, uh, you know, or they could say, boy, you know, it just wasn't that cool. And then you know, well, maybe I need to change uh, how I wrote it. I need to explain it better. I need to do something different. Um, did the topic not fit the program? This sometimes happens. Um, but be careful if you get one kind of comment out there, one of the, the reviewers has like said something, you think, what are they you know, coming from that field? Sometimes they just don't, they were confused, they didn't understand, they're not in your, your field. And if you resubmit and, ch and chase that comment and have two pages about this, the next, there's going to be different reviewers next time, very likely, and they're going to say, why is this person spending two pages on this? Right, so if it's one, uh, and this is again where we're, uh, talking to the program officer can really help. So call the program officer, be nice, don't explain why they're idiots and why they for not funding you, or try to get them to change their mind because they're not going to. You're calling them for advice. So ask for clarification. The review, the reviewers' comments. Ask them, you know, what should I do? Should I resubmit? Should I apply to a different program? Um, what do you think would strengthen this proposal? Um, and then you can decide, okay, maybe I'm going to resubmit a, the career next year to the same program. So I'm going to revise it and resubmit it. Maybe I'm going to use um, next year to revamp my project, generate more preliminary data. I'm going to take a year off and then I'm going to apply the following year. Maybe I'm going to resubmit um, uh, the career to a different program. Maybe I'm going to revamp the project and submit it to a core program, cut it down to two or three years and maybe they had problems with stuff and, and they make it a core program. Or um, maybe it's just not right for NSF. I need to revamp it and go to a different agency. Or maybe this idea is just not gonna work and I'm gonna have to try a different idea. 
Um, just but remember, you want to keep working on your ideas. It's not, you're not going to sit around for a year. You're going to actually keep working, and, uh, and that will help you talk to other people, get people to read it. Um, volunteer to be a reviewer. You don't have to have been funded by NSF to be a reviewer. And um, that's a really great experience. Everybody tells me that's one of the most valuable things they can do. And so um, um, that can be really helpful. Uh, but no matter what, your next proposal is going to be better. Uh, you're going to get to know the NSF and, the, and your program and the program officer. You're going to have learned from the experience and develop new skills. And uh, the best of luck to you. And uh, I'm going to hold on questions, I think, and let you, I think we pro our, our uh, proposal development <coughs> folks uh, come up because we've got, uh, we're already 10 minutes over. And uh, then uh, we can talk, we can bring questions up after that.